I'm sitting here with my father. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge, that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Sounds like a shakedown, doesn't it, director? I'm not going to get into commenting on that. You, you, you seem deeply uncurious about it, don't you? Almost suspiciously uncurious. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does not the has no oh, hold interest on. You in won't answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown, and everybody knows why you won't answer it. Because to, ev to the millions of people who will see this, they know it is. And your inability to acknowledge that is deeply revealing about you. All right, Sandy Rios with you. That was the voice of Matt Gates, who recently grilled uh, FBI Director Chris Ray before the Judiciary Committee in the House of Representatives. I thought it was really, it was one of the bright spots. Matt just really uh, brought it to Director Ray. And what he's talking about, he starts out quoting uh, a WhatsApp chat text from Hunter Biden uh, to a Chinese communist official and where Hunter Biden is threatening him. If you don't pay the money, buddy, uh, my dad's right here and there will be punishment and I have a long memory and et cetera, et cetera. And it was an amazing revelation of a few weeks ago. And so he's bringing that up to the director and the director, I don't really, I don't know. I'm So you heard that exchange and that's what that was about. I agree with him that director Ray was amazingly uncurious about that little exchange. Well, we're going to talk today a little bit about that uh, testimony by Christopher Ray before that committee. But uh, more importantly, we're going to speak with one of the FBI whistleblowers who came out in May of this year. His name is Steve Friend. And we're going to get Steve's take on that exchange with uh, Chris Ray in that committee. And so it's pretty interesting, and I think you'll find it fascinating. So I hope you'll stay tuned. But meanwhile, it's still July, and we're still celebrating as we think about it the birth of our nation and remembering the heroes that brought us our freedoms. And as, as, as a matter of fact, Steve Friend is one of those heroes of our current day. He and the FBI whistleblowers are pretty similar uh, to Patrick Henry and the other greats that are part of our history pages because they are changing history too. But did you know that there are Americans today who, for whatever reason, don't have heroes to rescue them? Not yet, except for you and me. And that would be babies in their mother's womb little babies who are destined to be torn apart or poisoned or dismembered. And that is abortion, of course. That's abortion. Uh, some people are in denial about it, but that's exactly what it is. So when preborn shows moms who are no doubt in despair or in a dilemma when they find out they're pregnant, when preborn shows them an ultrasound, a picture of their little baby, most women change their mind. You know, abortions are not forced on women. Uh, moms are the ones who have to make this choice. And so it's at that point that we need to reach them and help them to understand that this is a human life. And as an American citizen, of course, they do have a right to life and liberty. But, of course, that right comes from our Creator. If you would like to help Preborn do that, you can uh, $28 is all it costs for one ultrasound, just $28. And you can go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy and make your most generous donation. And by the way, if you want to uh, call us, you can do that at 662-821-2040. We're not doing this in real time, so you won't get an answer from me right now. But if you leave a message, we'll use it on the air, if you're nice, you know, if you promise me you'll be nice. You just have to dial 
888-212-2040. Or you can write us, uh, send an email at sandy at AFR.net. That's sandy at AFR.net. And if you uh, want a good and easy way to listen to the broadcast, uh, scratch this down or remember it, sandyrios.com. Sandyrios.com will take you wherever you need to go to listen to the broadcast. All right, well, this is a pretty interesting interview with an FBI whistleblower, a bold, brave young man. So stay tuned for this edition of Sandy Rios 24-7. From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A longtime Fox News contributor, Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. Seek justice. Not social justice, but God's justice. What's right and what's wrong. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. We've got to say this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. We've talked to over two dozen whistleblowers. People have come to us. We've interviewed several of those, and today three of them. Three of those brave whistleblowers and a lawyer who represents them will tell us their story. They will tell us what happened, what they saw, and then what happened to them because they were courageous enough to report it to Congress. I'm sad, I'm disappointed, and I'm angry that I have to be here to testify about the weaponization of the FBI and DOJ. Weaponization against not only its own employees, but against those institutions and individuals that are supposed to protect the American people. I am here today because even though I am wrongfully suspended from the FBI, I remain duty-bound to the American people to play my small role in rectifying these issues. Despite my history of unblemished service to the United States, the FBI suspended my security clearance, accusing me of actually being disloyal to my country. This outrageous and insulting accusation is based on unsubstantiated accusations that I hold conspiratorial views regarding the events of January 6, 2021, and that I allegedly sympathize with criminal conduct. I pray that all members consider the information I and my fellow whistleblowers present. You may think I'm a political partisan. You may think I'm a grifter. You may think I'm a conspiracy theorist. It does not matter. Simply put, This committee should avoid the temptation to impugn the character and the motivations of the messengers seated before you. All right, Sandy Rios with you on Sandy Rios 24-7. I think the ground must have shaken that day, and that was May of this year. There's so much news. That seemed like it happened a lot longer ago. When I saw May of 2023, I just couldn't believe how much has happened. But honestly, that's the day that three FBI whistleblowers testified before the House Judiciary Committee. That was Jim Jordan's voice. And it was the first time we heard um, anyone from inside the FBI verify what all of us know to be true. And that is that January 6th was not what the FBI was saying it was, nor was it what the narrative of the press was saying it was. And all of these arrests and um, maltreatments of people uh, arrested in their homes and all the rest of it. There's something rotten at the FBI. And finally, we heard uh, three really brave and bold men come out and say that. And uh, I do think the ground shook, and I think the FBI hasn't recovered yet. So one of those is with us. You heard his voice. That was the last voice. His name is Steve Friend. He's a former FBI agent. He is, uh, we more importantly, an FBI whistleblower. 
Uh, he is currently the fellow on domestic and intelligence and uh, security services for uh, America. Uh, I forgot to write the name down, Steve. What's the organization that uh, you're with? Center for Renewing America. Thank you very much. Our friend Russ Fott runs that. and They do wonderful work. So I'm so glad they snatched you. Um, and so, Steve, that was only, what, four, what, four months ago, something like that? Uh, did you, are you still with the FBI? I doubt it. But what was the progression? What happened? That you ended with uh, no, I'm not with the FBI. I, uh, I had to resign. Uh, I resigned February of this year, the morning that I testified for a transcribed interview with the, the Weaponization Select Committee. Uh, my lawyers advised me that uh, I, I do that because uh, Russ and the uh, Center for Renewing America had offered me this fellowship, and uh, I had requested permission from the FBI because they give you the paperwork to seek outside employment because you're, when you're suspended, you're technically an employee, uh, but you're unpaid. Um, and I requested permission to uh, to work for CRA, and uh, the FBI had denied that. So it was just an on, ongoing process where they were trying to uh, to force me financially out the door. Um, but my my attorneys were actually concerned that I would be charged criminally. The FBI would contrive a way to do that if I accept a position and still remained with the bureau. So I I decided to uh, to resign, but still stay in the intellectual fight uh, from my new seat as fellow. Well, that's a big, that's a huge leap, and uh, not not a small sacrifice for a young man who was in law enforcement. Let me just say, you investigated violent crimes and major offenses on Indian reservations in Northeast Nebraska for seven years. You were with the FBI Omaha SWAT team. Uh, you worked as an FBI agent in Daytona Beach, where you investigated child exploitation and human trafficking. Uh, it's uh, so, and you before that, you were a, a former state a policeman. Uh, so we'll talk about that because uh, you've written a book about that, by, I sh- by the way, I should say. He's just written a book called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. Uh, and, Steve, we, we're going to get into your life uh, a little bit later in the conversation. Uh, but I just in general, without going into detail because we're going to go into it later, what caused you to come forward and risk your, I'm guessing, lifelong dream what caused you to risk that by being a whistleblower? Because you knew it was going to be dangerous and you were going to pay for that. Why? Why did you do that? Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm a true believer in, in the oath of office that I took um, and, and the mission that I envisioned that the FBI uh, should, should bring forward. I always say that I'm a system idealist uh, rather than a system disruptor that we always see celebrated, especially uh, in the tech sphere in Silicon Valley. Um, I think law enforcement is about upholding a system, and then that means uh, adhering to the Constitution, the rule of law, uh, policy. And uh, it was my belief that the FBI was departing from that, and uh, nobody was willing to look in the mirror and ask the, the genuine question, are we the bad guys? And I also thought that there was a legitimate risk to FBI personnel and to the public at large with the way that uh, our office was going to be arresting some, uh, some of the January 6th subjects. And, you know, we just had that Netflix series come out on Net, um, about Waco recently that, that got a lot of attention. And uh, that, that whole incident can be Monday morning quarterbacked uh, all day long. Uh, but I felt like I was the guy there on Saturday, the day before the game, and uh, throwing the flag and thought that, that there was a potential for that to happen. And, uh, and I didn't want us to, to wind up having a similar outcome. Did you in any way think that maybe, just maybe, if you spoke out, there might be a correction, of course. 
Uh, yeah, I was I was actually fairly, I guess, naive, but uh, convinced that that was uh, go, at least uh, I would be maybe allowed an um, alternative duty that day. That was sort of the my presentation to, to my frontline supervisor and then up the chain of command. I, I didn't come forward with it the, in my mind becoming a whistleblower officially. Um, I just said, guys, I think what we're doing is wrong. I'm uncomfortable with it. Um, and, and even from a, a due process concern that I have, uh, you know, I've, I've been to trial more than most agents having worked on Indian reservations. That's uh, sort of a, the, the way that, that goes. I've been to eight trials, and I, I know that the pitfalls that exist there, and I felt that regardless of the success rate that these January 6 cases have had in that D.C. circuit, if a case has my name on it, I want it to be buttoned up as possible. And uh, I knew for a fact that we were departing from FBI uh rules and uh, that made me uncomfortable with taking a case forward and uh, and so I, I proposed maybe uh, alternate alternative duty like uh, sitting on a wire that we had running in my office rather than participating in, in those cases but uh, I was told that that was not an option for me that I had to uh, comply with what my superiors told me to do you know that I'm sorry of a random thought but it's not really random I was just thinking about um, uh, Martin Luther uh, who began the Reformation. He was a Catholic priest. You may or may not know about this, but um, he was a whistleblower on the Catholic Church uh, because he felt that what they were doing was wrong. He was fully dedicated to the Church, fully dedicated to his priesthood, but more dedicated, of course, to God himself. And um, he had no idea, he had, he had no idea that he'd be leaving the Church and starting a completely new Reformation. That was not his goal he just wanted it, things to be right. And so he wrote his, what, t- 10 theses and p- posted them on the door. And then, of course, all hell the broke loose. And the, the 95, thank you. And the whole world changed. And the whole world changed. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that may be part of what's happening to you that you don't realize, Steve. Um, well, I was, I, I, I was told immediately uh, within, uh, you know, uh, coming forward just a genuine concern that that was one of the first things out of the mouths of all of my supervisors up the chain of command was, you're risking your entire career on this. Yeah. Well, um, you know what, I, I was going to wait to do this, but I actually think I'm going to bring my husband in on this because uh, I just think I need to do that. My husband is a former FBI agent, a former prosecutor in Cook County. And uh, he, you know, you guys, you guys are kindred spirits. And so, uh, Bruce, uh, just some opening, maybe you have some questions for him so far about what he said. Good morning, Steve. I, Hi, how I you th- doing? I am very well, and thank you for being with us. Hey, I, I think what I hear in, in your voice is something that I've heard in the past, and that's that some supervisors in the FBI uh, are totally only concerned about their career and where they're going. And they act as if you have come aboard as an FBI agent to swear allegiance to them and to FBI management and not to the United States Constitution. And when I hear that you were warned, you know, you're risking your entire career here, I think that's code for you're causing problems for management's career. What do you think about that? I think you're spot on. I think that those individuals that seek that that managerial route within the FBI first swim in an entirely different ecosystem, certainly in the the meetings that I had, especially with the assistant special agents in charge. um, They were company men, um, and uh, they they were trying to resolve a situation. I was a glitch in their system, 
and I was creating an unnecessary headache for them. And then these are people whose entire endeavor in, in career is about promotion. They're never content to do the job that they're actually at. They're just thinking about the next rung of the ladder and what they need to do in order to get there. Uh, and that's, that's never anything that, uh, was my, my purpose in applying to the FBI. I wanted to do the things that we see, you know, in TV and movies. I wanted to put uh, bad guys in jail at the highest level. And I, I thought that I was amongst people that sort of, that shared my sentiment. But, um, unfortunately, that's not the case, especially within the managerial ranks. Yes, yeah, Steve, I think everyone says, uh, they, the, the company line is that it's just the management that's bad. Uh, it's really not the rank and file FBI members. Now, I know this is a tough question to ask you because I'm sure a lot of your close friends are still there, but do you agree with that, that it's just leadership that's gone bad? Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question to, to answer because I do think that there are people there that uh, righteously believe that uh, that's, that's a management issue and I'm just going to keep my head down and work my cases. But uh, as more time has, has passed uh, and I've reflected on this, I don't think that's adequate. I, I think that when you swear an oath um, to uphold the Constitution and, and, and do the job of an FBI agent, that does not guarantee that you're going to retire with a pension from the FBI. Uh, and, and too many people have uh, deluded themselves in believing that they just have to do this because they have to feed their family um, or it doesn't concern them. But uh, when you're part of an organization that is off the rails to the extent that the FBI has clearly demonstrated itself to be, especially in the last few years, I think it's incumbent on you to, to, to come forward. Um, and, and you cannot say, I have to pay my bills, I have to feed my family. I think that's a little bit of, over, of a hyperbole. Um, the, certainly in the FBI, uh, they're very well compensated, more than most uh, average Americans are. And, and secondarily, I think there's just a moral issue here where I've, I've come around to saying that you know, I'd rather have hungry children than morally bankrupt ones. And I have yeah. to demonstrate and, and, and reflect that in my life for them. Yeah. Wow, that's, a, that's well, so well said, and not many people even comprehend that, Steve. Uh, so thank you for saying that. I, I would like to ask you, uh, we we know how Bruce certainly knows and um, uh, how what it's like to be uh, in turmoil at work where things are not. <laughs> he has his own stories about uh, things that were happening to him in the bureau toward the end. Um, but um, there is usually like one thing that happens that ter- that sends you over the edge. So what was that thing that sent you over the edge? Uh, you, you know I, the. Objection that I had to the January 6th cases was the uh, was the culmination, but uh, to me was when my eyes, the scales sort of fell away from my eyes, was when I was reassigned from child pornography cases to domestic terrorism. And, and up to that point, you know, I was a team guy, and then if that's a, we have, we have to finite amount of resources, and if that's really where the threat is going to be, uh, then I would have been willing to do it. But uh, when my assistant special agent in charge remarked that child pornography was not a priority, and that was going to be considered a local matter going forward. And even in the brief time I had to work it and seeing that the egregious nature of it and uh, the voluminous quantity of cases that exist and how the locals are completely overwhelmed by that, uh, by that threat, I just know that that's not true. And, um, and that to me was a watershed moment uh, within my own um, Within my own experience, and then I, and and even before then, when I started to have my suspicions, was I was involved with the uh, the Gretchen Whitmer case in a small operational capacity as a SWAT uh-huh. operator, and and the fallout from that case, where it was very it was demonstrated to me very clearly that uh, the FBI was uh, entrapping 
those individuals. Uh, it really was the first time I questioned wow. if we were the good guys or the bad guys. I did not know you had an involvement in that. And I, uh, so uh, just to restate so people know, there was a, like, I mean, the numbers are not going to be right here, but there was like 12, I think, six or eight or 12. There were more agents involved in that so-called plot against Gretchen Whitmer than there were just those those guys that were just talking. doesn't seem like they had any serious intent. And actually, the FBI paid for, you know, places for them to meet. Were you that close to it, Steve, where you were there with them in those meetings? Or what was your involvement with that? Uh, I was summoned over there to, for their final takedown at the SWAT operator. And uh, it was the most unusual swap briefing I ever gotten in the five years that I was uh, an operator. Uh, and normally you would get uh, the operations plan and maybe a driver's license photo of our target. But in this one, we, we received video footage of these, these subjects training, and we were told that they were sophisticated uh, and they were close to us in training and capability and uh, equipment, and that we need to be prepared to get into a gunfight with these guys and to, to fully expect that to happen. Uh, and now, in retrospect, it, it seemed apparent to me that they were really getting us revved up to get into a gunfight with these guys. Oh, that's so creepy. I did not know that. I don't know. Maybe you've said it publicly, but I did not know that. And, of course, uh, safe to say, again, just to for people that don't, there was this story that people were trying to kidnap and kill Gretchen Whitmer. And it was right before she was going into an election. And she was so unpopular. People hated her for her covid uh, shutdowns and all the things that she had done and for other reasons. And so suddenly this story uh, comes, and many of us felt that this was the template uh, for what happened on January the 6th. Do you believe that, too, that this whole method and this whole setup thing was uh, like a just a um, like a warm-up to what happened on January 6th? I think that there, that's a fair uh, assessment to make. Uh, I think you can also say that it was uh, dual. It, it, it achieved the October surprise that uh, Whitmer and the Democratic Party were looking for, but it uh, also was the same tried-and-true practices that we've seen for decades, and that the FBI has entrapped individuals into terrorism plots and uh, taken people who were uh, you know, the, the not predisposed to commit any of those such offenses, maybe had some, uh, some mental issues or were certainly uh, the most vulnerable amongst us, and uh, we're just cannon fodder for the FBI with this self-looking ice cream cone that we see where they have to justify their existence and continually churn out more terrorism cases to ensure bonuses for the executives and ensure the ever-growing budget of the Bureau itself. Uh, and, uh, and as a result of that, we, we saw entrapped uh, Muslim Americans early after 9-11, and now it's evolved into uh, people who, who pulled the letter for Republican candidates for office. Steve, it sounds like um, when you say that you were reassigned, um, the justification for that from management is that domestic terrorism was on the rise and that child pornography was not as important. And I, if you still do it, I know we used to use a system called Turk, which was time utilization record keeping. And that was where every day you were supposed to account for the percentage of time that you spend on a particular classification, whether it be domestic terrorism, international terrorism, things like that. But one of the first things that spooked me about the FBI is occasionally we would be told, change your Turk entries. In other words, we're not burning enough time for the, uh, say, domestic terrorism. Congress has given us a budget to, to work domestic terrorism, and we're not doing enough uh, investigation. So change your time card. 
I'm thinking, change your time card. We're the FBI. They're telling us to falsify an official document. Um, did you see that when you were in the FBI? Yes, and what you're describing goes on in every division across the board fairly regularly because that is one of the metrics. They have to have a certain number of hours allocated towards each one of the, the violations. And, uh, and what you're saying is, is, really, is really true. I mean, they essentially force you to commit time card fraud uh, during the pay periods, and, uh, and, and that's felony. And, and in my case, in, uh, in Daytona, because there was absolutely no work to do on the domestic terrorism front, all the January 6th cases that our office had were already worked and just sitting idle for over a year. Uh, and my, my boss told me and approved of me working uh, basically child pornography cases on the fly. Uh, I, and at one point, I had no domestic terrorism cases um, that I was responsible for in all child pornography cases, but was still turking on my timesheet that I was a domestic terrorism agent. Um, Steve, on the, so on the issue of child pornography, it is my impression, not just from you but other people, uh, that, well, I guess the question is, is any agent working on child pornography are assigned to do that now? Um, I know other people that have been reassigned as well. And I, just when we interject, the movie Sound of Freedom, I bet you've seen it. If you haven't, I'm sure you will. Such a powerful story of the dangers, and there is so much. It's not just uh, trafficking. We have uh, an epidemic of child sexualizing here. I don't need to explain that to you. Um, and so the FBI has been like the go-to group on that. Is there anything going on on child exploitation right now in the FBI? There is. There, there are actual um, squads that are stood up and in the various field offices and then uh, from, from the headquarters component, and uh, they're looking into various uh, platforms and, and ways of doing it. The, the issue is that we're always behind the curve on it, and, and as a result of that, that, the people that the FBI tends to be able to charge are the less sophisticated ones. And I think it's probably similar with, uh, with every violation. I mean, I don't think that the, uh, the complex financial crimes are, are typically caught because uh, that's uh, deemed to be, well, it's, it's too complicated for us to really get when we've got to hit our numbers. We've got to get a certain number of arrests and open a certain number of cases. It's always just easier to get the low-hanging fruit. Um, and uh, as a result of that, this this child pornography issue that we're seeing that has and just blown up um, is it's never really adequately going to be addressed. And uh, we lean on the local uh, law enforcement partners to do the lion's share of the work. And, uh, and I think that the prime directive of the FBI, it should be inverted. I think the FBI should serve to, uh, to assist local partners rather than uh, cherry pick the juicy cases from them and can take credit for it. Oh, man, we could talk, talk a lot about that. You know, Steve, common sense, I think, would tell you that the way uh, an organization like the FBI should operate is they should identify a crime problem and then allocate their resources towards that problem. And instead, what I pick up from you is that management is driving the agenda to make themselves look better. In other words... Don't worry about the crime problem. Worry about how we can spin this so it looks like we're doing something to address a sexier, pro- a sexier problem. Um, would you agree with that? Yes, I do. Um, I, th- I think that the, uh, 
the nature of promotion within the FBI is you want to uh, develop a solution and then find a problem to apply it to. It's growing systems. It's, it's growing governments. It's spending taxpayer dollars. Uh, it's analogous to the movie Jurassic World, where the Vincent D'Onofrio character wants to use velociraptors to hunt terrorists. That is an FBI strategy. You don't need a SEAL team. You don't need a drone strike to kill the terrorists because those are already been done before. We need to do something new and novel and sexy. So we'll send dinosaurs to go attack the terrorists. And, and, and that is a ridiculous example, but I think it's uh, apropos here. And, and I think that the incentive structure for the FBI is completely uh, turned on its head where you have a police department or a sheriff's office in your town, and their goal is to bring crime down because we all want to live in Mayberry. But the FBI now exists with its integrated program management system, the quota system. The, uh, it exists to bring the crime numbers up because it's a self-looking ice cream cone. It wants to expand and then go to Congress and say, look, what all, all the great work we did for $10 billion, why don't you give us 11 or $12 billion? Uh, but Steve, uh, the, okay, to both of you, uh, this that sounds kind of innocent to me. Like That's like uh, normal bureaucratic uh, malfeasance. Uh, but what my impression is with the FBI is that it's much more insidious. Uh, that leadership is up to no good, that they have an agenda that isn't just self-aggrandizing, but also is like in partnership with the forces in this country that want to destroy us. Is that too strong, or do you agree? I think historically, the FBI has always been an extra-constitutional organization. It's never really been about uh, preserving our, our system of government or, or, or our constitution or rule of law. It's always been about preserving the status quo for who was in charge. And sometimes the Venn diagram might overlap with a constitutional Republican form of government. So the 40s brought us communists in the country and the FBI pursued them. And everybody who was a regular American thought that that was a good thing. But in the 60s, when the ruling elite uh, were anti civil rights and uh, did not like what Martin Luther King was doing, the FBI had co-intel pro and went after him. And I think now that the, uh, the national security state uh, and the intelligence uh, apparatus has evolved and the FBI is now an intelligence agency with a law enforcement component rather than just a law enforcement agency uh, and the mission creep that's come home since September 11th and the FBI as a bureaucracy is, is growing and it's fo- focus from terrorist actors outside uh, our borders and being a sentry on a wall and then trying to prevent an attack in the homeland uh, to now looking internally, first for homegrown violent extremists and now for domestic violent extremists. Um, those That's a very broad label, and the FBI is able to apply it towards enemies of the status quo. And, and the status quo now is incredibly left-leaning and does not like worldviews such as being pro-life or pro-traditional marriage or pro border sovereignty. And it's not a coincidence that those three uh, worldviews were deemed to be problematic enough for the Richmond field office to draft a memorandum about radical traditional Catholics as being ripe for anti-government extremism because the FBI is going after the perceived enemies of those who are in power. Well, speaking of Chris Ray, <laughs> speaking of his recent testimony, sorry, I know you weren't, but <clears throat> this came up, and of course he know, he doesn't know anything about that. In fact, most of his answers in the recent testimony to the Judiciary Committee were pretty vague. In fact, I want to give an idea about it. Let's let's play clip six just to give you an idea and all of us an idea about how the director of the FBI responded 
to the questions from the Judiciary Committee in the House of Representatives. Clip six. Let my have my staff follow back up with you. We can follow back up but with don't you. you. That doesn't ring a bell as I sit here right now, no. And I'm happy to see if we can follow back up with you. That doesn't sound familiar to me. As I sit here right now, I don't have the answer for you on that. I don't know the answer to that as I sit here right now. Let me follow up and make sure if there's anything more I can provide you on that. That's the kind of the way it went. And uh, I don't know, uh, Steve, I'm guessing since you've been in the, you had not been at headquarters, I don't think you were assigned in your career at the FBI at headquarters. Is that right? No, no, I wasn't. I was just a beat agent. Okay, so, but he's he was your director. So when you heard him testify yesterday, I'd love to know what your thoughts were about how he conducted himself. Uh, well, I think Christopher Wray uh, does not fear the, uh, the the House, does not fear congressional oversight, uh, which is uh, what, it's, what the duties are of the Congress. They're supposed to have oversight authority. But uh, he does not believe he's going to be held accountable. By, uh, by the House or the House Judiciary or the Republicans, which is why he feels comfortable in walking in that room and uh, providing no answers or refusing to uh, refusing to provide answers or hiding behind the, the, the tried and true, I can't comment on an ongoing investigation or I can't reveal sources and methods, or his new favorite, which he likes to say, where when he's presented with an objective uh, evidence that the FBI committed some sort of ma- misdeed or malfeasance, and he'll just say, well, we're not in the business of, of committing that misdeed or malfeasance. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry, that's just factually inaccurate when you're presented with evidence uh, contrary to that. Uh, he didn't respect the process enough to even read the court uh, decision that we had rendered on July 4th about uh, government uh, censorship uh, on social media. And, uh, and I don't think that that's... Uh, that, that, that reflects well on him. I think his uh, laughter when he was asked if he could forego 10 months without being paid shows that uh, he has no respect for uh, his own personnel who came forward and with a reasonable concern as whistleblowers. And um, he felt comfortable lying at least two times that I could uh, count uh, that I had own personal experience. One was saying that uh, no FBI agents were sent to surveil parents at school board meetings. Well, I, I did. I was sent to do that. And he also said that no agents were reassigned from child pornography work to work on domestic terrorism. And once again, I did that and had personal experience doing that. So uh, those are at least two instances where I can cite where he was uh, deliberately uh, dismissed. He was deliberately, uh, let's say, uh, lawyerly in his responses where he said that it was – not to his knowledge, but uh, I, I find that really hard to believe, seeing as how I've been sort of an outspoken person. Steve, can you tell us what you were assigned to do when you were sent to surveil these um, PTA or, or uh, parents' meetings at schools? Yes. Uh, well, there was a subject. He was actually a January 6th uh, subject, and I guess there had been some online communications which were being monitored. Um, I, I guess we have to question the if that was done legally at this point with the number of FISA abuses that we've seen come out of the FBI. But uh, there have been online communications where this individual said he was going to go in solidarity with the parents that were going to a school board meeting. And, um, and there had been some pornographic material that had been found in school libraries, and it was expected to be a quite contentious school board meeting. And it was during all this time where the Loudoun County caught a cut fire and, it, and the, the threat tag was revealed. And we were tasked with surveilling him to the school board meeting and then in the parking lot documenting his contacts and any vehicles of individuals who he seemed to be communicating with. Uh, we were going to uh, 
get, get them up in the dragnet. And uh, in retrospect, it's apparent to me that the FBI, or at least in my office, was trying to, to build out its intelligence investigation, uh, develop more targets, and perhaps even marry the narrative that we've seen with January 6th, where there are these anti-government white supremacists with school board parents. And uh, once you can, can marry those two issues, then that would be a whole new line of, of investigation the FBI could pursue. You know, this is the thing uh, that's been just horrific, and that is identifying, <laughs> perverting the the definition of domestic terrorism and creating a whole uh, genre of that, even actually making up numbers. And I know, uh, Steve, I go back a long way fighting the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they are the ones who create hate statistics that are fake and false and overdrawn, and anybody, I've been on their list. I mean, I, you know, FRC has been attacked, Family Research Council. There was an attempted assassination there because of uh, the the things that they print about who are domestic terrorists, and the FBI has kind of co-opted that line of thought. So this was a, this is how they then expanded that whole notion, and that is through targeting people who were at the Capitol on January the 6th. How did, what, how did that happen? How did that morph into that from your perspective, to them being d- domestic terrorists? Well, I think that the demand for domestic terrorism vastly outstrips the supply in this country. And I say demand because there's a demand from our ruling elite to have that political narrative. And there's demand from our bureaucrats, which uh, want to get the budgets, and then the actual uh, senior executives, which want to who want to get their personal bonuses that are tied to those. So we, we this now comes into the integrated program management that the FBI has, the, the quota system for the number of cases they have to open. And because there's demand for domestic terrorism, the FBI is going to work smarter and not harder and going to interpret what domestic terrorism actually is as broadly as possible and manipulate the way that they, they uh, do investigations in a way that they can boost the numbers. Uh, and as a result of that, it creates a false narrative that uh, domestic terrorism is around the country when, it, and in fact, it really isn't. I mean, you can look no further than the, the disruption statistic that the FBI invented for itself. And uh, I believe last fiscal year, the goal was for them to disrupt 600 terrorist activities or terrorist organizations. Uh, <laughs> they only achieved 397. That means that every day of the year and twice on Sunday, the FBI disrupted a terrorist cell or uh, or organization. Now, if that were the case, and that was a legitimate and righteous activity, uh, I think we would see some of those attacks come fall through the cracks because of just the volume of it. And we just don't see that in this country. And then that just means that the FBI is broadly interpreting that to create this narrative. And uh, and that's not in keeping with its mission to uh, to preserve the, the rule of law. Uh, when it, now we're, we've, we've seen the Overton window shifted and uh, half the country is deemed to be anti-government uh, extremists and, and should be barred from polite discussion. All right, for I have one more question for you. I, I just, because we're talking so much about the FBI and sort of the bureaucratic sickness of it, uh, a lot of people, friends of mine actually, are pushing that the FBI be abolished, be done away with it. It's irredeemable. Do you agree with that? I do. Um, I, I think if you may be king for a day, that that would probably be the end result. However, I do think that there is a way that I would be willing to, to give the uh, the honest, uh, the old college try uh, to reform the agency. And, and that would be 
I believe you should eliminate the 1811 criminal investigator, i.e. special agent position from the FBI. Take away all the guns and its ability to enforce. It can still be a Bureau of Investigation that can carry forward unarmed investigations and force them to partner with local law enforcement agencies, which they already do, uh, and then just expand that effort and deputize local detectives from sheriff's offices and police departments uh, under the United States Marshal Service. And that will, in effect, create a final stopgap measure for an FBI that if, it, uh, if they decide that they want to investigate Sandy as a domestic terrorist and uh, they, they bring a case forward to your sheriff and your sheriff can say, uh, that's well done, FBI, but my personnel will not affect that arrest. And it allows a, a local uh, component to essentially staff the arrest authorities in the FBI and then also prevent it from, from getting out of hand. Yeah. I've thought about that, too, uh, and uh, we've talked, Bruce and I have talked about bringing, I always think it's a good idea. There's enough people who've gotten out because they can't stand it, uh, that you, there's enough resource of trained people to bring them back to sort this out. We just need a, I just think we need a purge, a purge of that building. And, um, but uh, so we, we would hope and pray that that would be possible, maybe under another uh, lead, bit of leadership in this country, God willing, we can get somebody there who has uh, integrity at the top. Uh, then maybe we could do a wholesale revamp uh, and have something that would be we could be proud of and we could trust once again. Steve, uh, I, I would love for you to join me to talk about your new book and your just your life. If uh, we could do a, a second uh, podcast with you, that would be a pleasure. So uh, let's uh, let's say goodbye for right now. But we'll come back and we'll talk about your whole life. I want to talk about your life as a as an officer. Uh, a state trooper, and uh, how you got into the FBI, and all of those good stories that you have in your book. It's True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to Suspended FBI Whistleblower. And uh, the next time you hear us talking on Sandy Reels 24-7, it will be our second edition with Steve Friend, the FBI Whistleblower. Thank you for listening. Sandy Rios 24-7. Well, that's just part one of our discussion with Steve Friend. And uh, uh, the next discussion gets even more lively because we talk about his life and a little more detail about what really uh, caused him to step out and do what he did. I think you're going to be. I think you're going to enjoy it in the next uh, session we have with him. Uh, and also, I want to remind you that Preborn makes this possible. We could not have these discussions without their sponsorship. It's twenty eight dollars for one ultrasound to save one baby, and also uh, to just create an awareness in the mother's mind and heart that this is a real baby in her to give her a vision of what life. Uh, saving a life really means because she's the first one to save her baby's life when she makes that decision to keep it. $28 for one ultrasound. All you have to do is go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy. And again, you can call us with a comment at 662-821-2040. And if you want to, to know how to share with your friends how to listen to the show in an easy way, just tell them to go to sandyreels.com. SandyRios.com, and you can write us at Sandy at AFR.net. Well, we have some thoughts, Bruce and I, about our conversation with Steve Friend, so stay tuned. This is Sandy Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. People trusted the FBI more when J. Edgar Hoover was running the place than when you are. And the reason is because you don't give straight answers. 
you give answers that, that later a court deems aren't true. And then at the end of the day, you won't criticize an obvious shakedown when it's directly in front of us. And it appears as though you're whitewashing the conduct of corrupt people. Respectfully, Congressman, in your home state of Florida, the number of people applying to come work for us and devote their lives working for us is over up over 100 percent. We're deeply proud of them and they deserve better than you. Wow. Well, that was quite the smackdown of Congressman Mike, uh, Matt Getz from Florida with a director of the FBI, Christopher Ray, just a few days ago. Uh, and so our conversation with uh, Steve Friend couldn't have been better, better timed in a response to that. But I've asked Bruce, uh, to, well, he's been with us already on the show, but Bruce, uh, what do you think about that smackdown by Matt? Did you like that? Uh, very needed, very necessary, and very warranted. Christopher Ray goes up there. Every time we see him testify before Congress as the director of the FBI, think about that, the director of the FBI, sworn to tell the truth, the leader of the organization, and you know what? He can't remember anything. Every answer is that is potentially a problem for him is, I'm not aware of that, I can't speak to that, hey, I'll on. be glad to get hang back. On, hang on, you're exaggerating. I know you're exaggerating. Let's play clips, clip six to show that you're exaggerating. Let me have my staff follow back up with you. We can follow back up but with don't you. you. That doesn't ring a bell as I sit here right now, no. And I'm happy to see if we can follow back up with you. That doesn't sound familiar to me. As I sit here right now, I don't have the answer for you on that. I don't know the answer to that as I sit here right now. Let me follow up and make sure if there's anything more I can provide you on that. Well, see, you're, you're overstating okay, it for us. I apologize. <laughs> he was crystal clear to every question he was asked. He came prepared, yeah. and he wanted to be transparent. So set the record straight. <laughs> I think so. All right, well, that was quite the discussion with Steve, wasn't it? I enjoyed that very much. You know, it's really amazing to see the dichotomy between the tap dance that Director Ray gave and the straight answers that Steve Friend gave. Um, I think it's tragic, if I can use that word, tragic, what Christopher Ray and others in the FBI management have done to this organization. I, I'm almost embarrassed. I hate saying that, but I'm almost embarrassed to even admit that I was a part of them. I'll have people go, oh, yeah, we used to trust them. And it's, it's just heartbreaking. And it's because of this stuff that's going on. Why can't the director answer these questions directly? I want to respond to what you just said, Bruce, because as your wife, I have to say, without us going into detail, uh, the FBI meant so much to you, and you actually moved heaven and earth to be a part of them. You were a prosecutor at Cook County. You spent a lot of years of your life planning for this, and you, as a young boy, went to the FBI Bureau in D.C. and saw this, you know, in the, the firing range, were so impressed with what they were doing, it planted that seed in you. So this was a lifelong goal you joined, you were all into the mission, you gave it your all, and now to see this happening, it really grieves me because like, we are in the process of trying to uh, decorate your office a little bit, and you were even hesitate, hesitant about making it an, F an FBI emphasis because of the shame. And I just think that's, that is just incomprehensible and um, unspeakable, the, what the destruction that Chris Ray and before him James Comer and even before him Robert Mueller have done to this agency. It really is disgraceful. I want to set the record straight on something because uh, we talked a little bit about Gretchen Whitmer, and I felt uh, there, I was too vague. And I want to say Gretchen Whitmer, of course, is the governor of Michigan. And what happened was right close to her election when her polls were just dreadful, uh, there came this story breaking that this group of men 
uh, were trying. The FBI just discovered this plot to kidnap and kill Gretchen Whitmer. And I remember, Bruce, you remember you and I both go, that doesn't, that just doesn't even, it just stinks, even what they're saying and how they're saying it. Well, we watched the press conference of the U.S. attorney that was going to handle the case, and immediately uh, red flags went up that this is made up. Yeah. This is, a, this, I've seen the, the um, standard of proof that must be produced to, to make a case like this, and this wasn't even in the same stratosphere. You yeah. could tell this was a politically motivated career saver for Gretchen Whitmer to, to remain the governor of Michigan. But here's the thing. Without um, what they ended up doing, now we know this because of uh, people like Steve Friend and others who've come out, we know that uh, there was a motley group, not even that well-constructed. One of them lived in his mom's basement. They were poor. They didn't have much. They were not like regimented, armed, but they had conversations that they didn't like Gretchen Whitmer. And so the FBI infused more agents uh, than there were those guys. I mean, we're talking about a very small group and sort of whipped them up, actually gave them money, well, uh, paid for a place for them to meet, uh, fueled whatever little bit they did do. The FBI drove it and helped organ- and organized it, really. It, it is un believable to see what they did. And these guys were charged with serious crimes. Uh, do you know about that, Bruce? So what, what ended up happening with them? Can you tell us? Well, three of the uh, defendants that were charged federally, some were charged federally, some were charged in state court. Three of them uh, went to prison, terms of 16 years in prison, things like that. The government sought to get life sentences against these guys. I just this is repulsive, and so Steve uh, was uh, as he as he told us uh, was part of this is part of what uh, caused him to just say I can't do this anymore. Uh, anything? Any further thoughts? We had a nice long discussion with him. Any further thoughts about something he might have said? Well, I think what you have to remember is the FBI and the rest of the federal government operates under this what I would call theory of called the golden handcuff, and what happens is. And I experienced it myself. You get, say, eight, ten years in on your career. Now you have a mortgage. Now you have children. Now you have car payments, things like that. You're trying to get on with your life and make a living. And you see something that rubs you the wrong way. In other words, some kind of corruption in the FBI. You know, if you open your mouth, you heard Steve's own words. They were telling him, you are putting your career in jeopardy. Now think about that. Now you have to make a decision. Do I risk uh, ruining my career and losing my salary, losing my pension? Because the pension is a big incentive. Get to the end of your 20 years and, and you'll get a, a big uh, pension and insurance coverage and all kinds of things. So now they know most people... Probably 99% of the people are going to say, you know what, I'm just going to put my head down and forget about this. I'll write it out. That Steve didn't do that. He was one of the small percentage of people that stood up. A real hero for our time. And when uh, we next talk to you, we'll be speaking with Steve again about his book, which is the story of his life. And I don't think you're going to want to miss it. But I hope that you enjoyed today's version of Sandy Rios 24-7.